born. Veiled in flesh, like Charles Wesley says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He was veiled in flesh. And he came with a very specific purpose, not to bring good cheer, not to do anything like that. He came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. And then you think of that Passover week in A.D. 30. You think of Christ as He enters Jerusalem to the adoration and the applause of the crowd. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the King of Israel. And that as he day by day marches closer to the cross of Calvary. For what? To give his life a ransom for the many. And then as he took that cross... And the wrath of God was poured out on His only begotten Son. Christ became the penalty for sin for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He became that penalty of sin. The mockings and the scourgings and the whippings and the punchings and the beating and the blood that flowed down from Calvary's cross. And then, as he endured the wrath of God, as God's justice was satisfied, as he became a propitiation, he satisfied the justice of God. Christ uttered those words, it is finished. And he gave up his ghost. And he was laid in a tomb. And I can only imagine that in that hour, Satan and his demons and his minions must have been rejoicing and dancing and applauding and everything else, stupid as they are, not realizing that on the third day, as it was prophesied, as Jesus himself stated, he will rise again on the third day. And on that third day, The Christ arose, defeating sin and death. It's all done. Sin and death. And you know what? He walked among men for 40 days. Over 500 people saw him. There are 500 eyewitness testimonies of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And on the 40th day before his disciples right there, he ascends into the heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's only taking a little bit of a rest right now because there's another day coming. There is a second advent soon to occur. And it's not going to occur when everything is really good and the church is doing good and the world is in righteousness and in peace. No, the second advent is going to occur just like the first one at a very, very dark, time in the history of the church and there will be a shout and there will be a trumpet blast and there will be the voice of the archangel 
and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, then we which shall remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. These glorious truths shrouded in myth, shrouded in unbelief. Many people gathered today and had gathered last night not knowing what they were celebrating. Isn't that ironic? They didn't know what they're celebrating. Most don't know the true story of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have this sure word given to us in the Holy Scriptures that tell us what it is that we worship. So today I've selected for my text Luke chapter 2, verse 20, which I'll read in a moment. And I want to really show you two very important aspects of the birth of this Christ child. I want to show you the humility of Christ. You know, over the last few weeks, we looked at the, the exaltation and the humiliation of Mary. We looked at the humility of Joseph, two godly Parents that were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was born of the Virgin Mary. We saw that Joseph adopted Christ, went ahead and, and, and stayed with the marriage with Mary. But now we're going to see something more glorious as well. We're going to see the exaltation of the proclamation of Christ. But we're also going to see the humility of of Christ. So as I said, I've selected for my text Luke chapter 2 verse 20 and it reads as follows, and the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told to them. Now we begin today first with the response of the shepherds. Now, you might know the story, right? They were keeping watch over their flock at night. Another routine night, probably another dark night, another night that they have done thousands and thousands of times before, keeping watch over the flock, watching out for the wolves, perhaps watching out for raiders that want to come and and steal some of the flock. And it was very, very, very routine. But something extraordinary happens to these shepherds. Something extraordinary happens. And what happens causes them to go to Bethlehem and causes to see this baby lying in a manger. And as we saw in our text, the response of the shepherds are what? They go back glorifying and praising God for all that had been heard and all had been seen. Now, this is pretty amazing. We saw over the last few weeks how the prophets had prophesied of the birth of a deliverer that will come in Israel. We know it begins back in Genesis chapter 3, 15, where God himself foretold of the seed of the woman who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And we see in Deuteronomy 18, Verses 15 and 18 to 19, where Moses tells Israel, hey, another one is coming, a prophet is coming, who is going to be much greater than than I. And you're to listen to that prophet. 
And then we saw, as we saw the past few weeks in Isaiah 7, 14, that the prophet Isaiah prophesied that a virgin shall conceive, that this is going to be a sign to Israel. A virgin's going to conceive a child, and there's going to bear a son, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then again in Isaiah 9, 6, speaks of a, a really special child. This isn't an ordinary child. This is a special child. And in the prophecy, the child is given titles. And these titles are just unbelievable. He is called Wonderful. He is called Counselor. He is called the Mighty God. Can there be any ambiguity there with the Mighty God? If you have any doubt, look at what he's called next. He's called the Everlasting Father, or as it is rightly translated, the Father of Eternity. Well, who else could that be? He's called the Prince of Peace. Again, in the, the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40, Isaiah speaks of one who is referred to in Isaiah 45 as the glory of the Lord. He's going to come. One will come before him, which is John the Baptist, who's going to clear the way for what? For the glory of the Lord is going to come. And then in the prophet Micah speaks of a child that will be born in an obscure village of Bethlehem. And this child will come forth, the prophet says, as a ruler in Israel. Yes, the birth of Jesus Christ was foretold. And on this cold night in Luke chapter 2, in this lonely manger, the glory of God is revealed in the birth of Christ. And in the providence of God, God does not get kings or nobles to present them to the world. You ever wonder about that? No kings, no nobles, no city officials, no government officials. But he chooses rather lowly shepherds. I think I may have said this over the years, but it's worth noting again. Shepherds weren't held in high esteem. It wasn't like, you know, that was the profession someone esteemed to be. Boy, when I grow up, I'm going to be a shepherd. It was thought, it was held in contempt. It was held in contempt by Egyptians. We know that from Moses becoming a shepherd. It was contemptible to an Egyptian that that's all you could do is walk around with a stick and, and lead sheep together? It wasn't anything that was held in high regard. But God in His providence reveals this glory to shepherds. And we see what was the impact on the shepherds. They go back glorifying God. Now, sometimes we may think that glorifying simply means that they went back saying, oh, praise God, you know, no. Glorifying goes back, it, the word itself is much deeper in its meaning. To glorify God means to render or to esteem God in his character and in his fullest. It means valuing him for who he is, rendering to God that which God is worth. 
I think the church today could learn a lesson on how to glorify God, how to render to Him esteem, how to give Him everything that He is. Notify these shepherds as they leave this child, go back and they're glorifying God. They have been impacted. They have been changed. They have been changed by seeing a child in a manger. And they go back glorifying and praising, extolling God. They give God his worth and they praise God for who he is. And the impact of this Christ child is immediate and direct. The shepherds who were startled and afraid when the manifest glory of God descended upon them in the field now are impacted by the child that they saw in the manger. And notice this this exaltation of the proclamation of the Christ child, right? You You look through history and you see even in the New Testament just a few examples of people who when they laid eyes on Christ were immediately and directly impacted. One of the first ones I can think of is Simeon, also in Luke chapter 2. In verses uh, 29 to 32 and 34 to 35, Simeon makes this incredible statement when he lays eyes on the infant Jesus. He says, my eyes have beheld thy salvation. Immediate after him is Anna the prophetess, again in Luke chapter 2. And she recognizes immediately the authority of Christ. But as Christ grows and becomes a man, there's one that is startling, and that is John the Baptist. And in John 1 verse 29, he, he echoes a call that is extraordinary as he's, as he's at the river baptizing He's baptizing, by the way, Jews in a repentance. He's saying, hey, repent, turn from your sins. The kingdom of God is at hand, and he's baptizing, and he's being criticized by the Pharisees, and he's baptizing. And here comes Christ, and John turns and sees Christ, and he echoes this famous statement, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's not an ordinary greeting. I hope everybody knows. He's impacted immediately. I think of the Samaritan woman, the woman of the well in John chapter 4, who, you know the story, time prevents me to tell it in, in too much detail, but she comes up to Jesus. Jesus asked her for a drink. He said, if you knew who it was, You would ask me for living water, and I would give you living water. And he says, go fetch your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're absolutely right. The one you're living with is not your husband. You've had five other husbands before. By the way, this was not an ordinary woman. This was a woman with a scandalous past. And she asked him a question. Where do we go to worship? Where do we go? 
I know you Jews, you Jews say it's down there in Jerusalem. You've got to go down to the temple. That that's where God is. We Samaritans, we say it's up here in the mountain. Where do you go? And Jesus says the day is coming and now is when those who desire to worship God shall worship him in spirit and truth for thus the, for such the Father desires to be his worshipers. And she gets into a conversation with the Savior of the world. You know how lucky she was? We're going to meet this woman one day in glory. I'm going to have a lot of questions for her. But in the interest of time, in John 4, 29, she goes back to the other villagers in Samaria, and she makes this incredible statement. Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? Their impact was direct and immediate. The shepherds were praising God not merely for what they had seen, the Scripture says, but Luke tells us for what they had heard. Well, what had they heard that evening? Listen, they heard the message of the gospel. Go back a little bit in Luke chapter 2. Look at verses 10 through 12. Well, let's pick up for context in verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were, I love the way the King James says it, they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. On this amazing night, they had a supernatural revelation brought to them by God. Brought to them by God. And such it was as they were out on the field where all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appears to them. And notice what he says. I bring you what? Good news. Now the Greek word there is you on helingon. In you, the first portion of that word, always refers to in the Greek something good. We get English words from that today. We get eulogy. What's a eulogy? Well, you're going to say something good about somebody that's passed on. So the EU becomes the first portion. It gives us good. The second component of that compound word is angelos. We get the word angel. What is an angel? He's a messenger. So the compound brings you this word. I bring you Good message, which translates into English as good news. I'm bringing you good news. And the angels declare that. And that good news is what? The good news is born to you this day in the city of David, 
is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, the good news, we we talk about this all the time. We use the Christian buzzwords. But the good news of the gospel continues to go out today. Every time that we have an opportunity to articulate, to share the gospel with another person, we are doing just as the angels did. We are proclaiming to them, hey, I got good news. And the good news is this, that one could now come into perfect and holy communion with a living, holy, and righteous God through the blood of the Son of Jesus Christ, that all who come to Him in repentance and faith should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, there's something else that's rather significant here, too, regarding the gospel. You know, the gospel is not something that we have a right to tinker with. It's not, we don't have a right to massage it. We, we don't have a right to smooth out its edges. Why? Because the gospel does not belong to us. It is the gospel of God. Paul puts it this way. You could turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1 in verses 1 and 2. I just want to make this point because this is a rather important, significant point. Notice Paul's words at the opening of his epistle to the Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. We don't have a right. When the gospel says that neither is there salvation in any other, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, we must proclaim that truth. When the gospel tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we must proclaim that truth. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. When the gospel tells us that those that go unrepentant of their sin will live a life in separation in eternity from God in a Christless eternity in hell, we must declare that truth. When the gospel tells us that God is holy, God is just, God is right, and that in and of ourselves we can't approach God, that we need a substitute, that we need forgiveness of sins, and that was appropriated by Christ Jesus so that by faith, when we call upon His name, we shall be saved by His grace. We must proclaim that truth. We have no right to alter it. We have no right to say, well, I'll leave out the parts about sin and I'll leave out the parts about God's holiness and I'll just talk about His grace and mercy and love. We need to declare the whole counsel of God. And so the angels come to the shepherds and guess what they do? They proclaim the good news. And the shepherds may have known, they may have heard of the prophecies regarding the Christ child that was to come and redeem Israel. But this was indeed good news. 
they had revealed themselves to the angels to such an extent that the angels didn't go, oh, this is great news. The angels in the glory of God were terror-stricken. Could you imagine being out on that field at night and the sky splits and a host of heavenly angels are in the sky? By the way, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says that they sang. You know that, right? It says they praised God. I've never heard angelic praising. I can only imagine that it has to be one of the most beautiful things that is ever imagined. But they see it, they're frightened, but it does something to them. What does it do? It causes them to immediately proceed to Bethlehem and to see this thing which the angels had made known to them. This supernatural revelation. You know, you look at the church today and you see so many aberrations in the church, but there are so many people that are claiming supernatural revelation, supernatural revelation, and, and, and people flock to these things. They want a touch. They want a prophecy. They want an experience. They want an emotional experience. And they flock to these people who profess that they can do these things. It's as if the Word of God is insufficient in itself. That I need more than the Word of God. I need more than the message of salvation. And today, this great story of the gospel being proclaimed by angels, today is met with a mixture of indifference and unbelief in most of the world. But for those of us who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, those of us whom we have met the Christ, and His impact is direct and immediate upon our lives, we know that the Word of God and our salvation is in itself a supernatural, glorious event that caused us to be changed. Listen, on this Advent day, we can sing and praise and glorify God just as the shepherds had on that first Christmas morning. We can exalt God. We can magnify God. Listen, for our Redeemer has come and He has saved us to the utmost. Please, I beg, I really beg, do not lose the significance of this day, please, in myth and culture. Please, I beg you. I was at Christian Care Ministries last Wednesday and I preached the message, the true meaning of Christmas. And that was the whole genesis of that message. Do not lose Christ in Christmas. And let us not do the same. It's okay, man. It's okay to go with your family. It's okay to share a gift. It's all okay. But let us do like the shepherds do. Let us go glorifying and praising and exalting God and magnifying Him above Him. Let us render to God 
that which he is worth. Charles Wesley, we sang it, captured this in the great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He captures the praise of the shepherds. He says this, Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Right then and there, we see the exaltation at the proclamation of the birth of this Christ child. Now let's look at the humility of this Christ child. And two things happened that night to the shepherds. One of them occurred in the field while they were watching over their flock by night. The other occurred when they saw the baby Jesus in the manger. And something spectacular occurred that changed them forever. Note that in the field, they bore witness to the supernatural display of God. They were told that Christ was born in Bethlehem. They bore witness to the manifest glory of God, the Shekinah glory, that frightened them to the very core of their beings. Right? We just went through that. And they saw the sky split, and they saw the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God things that they had never seen before, things that they would never see again. And by the way, if you are in Christ, we will see that. You know that? When this world is over, whether we get there by the rapture or we get there by death, we will bear witness to that heavenly ensemble singing the glory and the praises of God. And I, for one, can't wait. I think it's going to be a great day. Now, one would think that with all the supernatural prophetic revelation, that they would find the Christ child worshipped and adored by throngs of people. Wouldn't that be the expectation? Hey, angels came. Angels made this proclamation. The Christ is being born. Let us go there. Let us see what this amazing, spectacular sight would look like. But what do they find when they get there? Well, Luke says it in Luke 2, 16. And they came in haste, which means they came quickly, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. Note that the exaltation of Christ was great and amazing, but the humiliation of Christ was even greater. The Scriptures do not speak of crowds of adoring people. No royalty at His birth. No fine linens to attend to the child. No servants assisting Mary. No angels. No armies. No servants no trumpets, nothing but a baby, his mother and father, laying in a feeding trough in animals in the humblest of settings. Is this the way for a king to be born? 
Look at the humility. Veiled in flesh. Hey, veiled in flesh was significant enough. The pre-existent Christ, the second person of the Godhead, dwelling in unapproachable splendor, would veil himself in the form of a human being. But now he would even condescend even lower. Listen, if Christ came and he was born in the finest palace and he had the finest servants and he was wrapped in the finest linens and he was fed the best food and there were people around him serving Mary and Joseph and the baby 24-7 around the clock, warm at night, Cool in the day. Do you know that even there, Christ condescended to take the form of a human? And the thing that really moves me about this account is this. Having borne witness to all of the supernatural glorifying events that took place to them probably hours ago. Yet the shepherds do not fail to give praise and glory to God for what they had seen. Even Jesus, you look at Luke 2, verses 17 and 18. Look at the, the response of the shepherds. And when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Christ was found to be everything. Everything. His humility, His humble surrounding, His humble birth did not caused the shepherds any disappointment. What they had heard and what they had seen in the Christ child was enough. Nothing was lacking. Nothing at all was lacking. The supernatural announcement of the angels which preceded the visit did not dampen Anything regarding the humble birth of Christ. The beauty of this moment was found in the humility of Christ. Do we not go back to the manger and do we not stand in awe of the humility of Christ? Do we not go to the cross and do we not stand in awe of the humility of the Christ? How many times I have thought to myself, Lord, why would you let them beat you like that? Why would you let them speak to you like that? Lord, you could have just said the word and you could have wiped out these people. But in humility, Christ came. Christ served. And in humility, Christ died. Many times we see the glory We see God's glory in that which is miraculous or attended to with 
supernatural revelation or proclamation as what happened with the shepherds. And we tend to miss the glory of God in the ordinary, in the humble circumstances of life whereby God intervenes with us. We look at the birth of our Lord Jesus and we can see angels and heavenly hosts proclaiming Jesus' birth. But the beauty of this is that God became a man, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. And He appeared for all purposes ordinary in appearance. Did not the prophet Isaiah say this? In Isaiah 53, 2, he says, For He grew up before us like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. Notice these words from the prophet. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Christ didn't come as the most handsome man. Christ didn't come as the most gallant man. Christ did not come with any air of nobility. The prophet says he didn't have an appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't have that royal pedigree that the world so looks at. He wouldn't have been considered one of the beautiful people, the Hollywood elite. That everybody says, oh, look at that one, look at this one. Listen, our Lord Jesus Christ lived 30 years on earth in obscurity. Complete obscurity. And don't you believe any of the false gospels that say when he was a little kid, he made toy birds and then made them fly and all these other different things. Though There is no truth in that. The glory of our, first, of our Lord's first advent was Christ's humility. And it's in His humility that we see the beauty of our Savior. And I would suggest to everybody today that the same holds true for us today. Our faithfulness to God does not need to be attended to by supernatural Acts, although God is supernatural and does act supernaturally, right? God is God, and he'll work according to whatever he has to do, however he has to do it. But you know what? We still hold to grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Christ today has the power to save and to change lives as some of us can attest to. So we must live our lives with faithfulness as a testimony before God and humility and grace before the Lord. Today our culture is overrun. It's been overrun by myths regarding this glorious day of our Lord's birth. But it does not have to be this way for us, the believers. I hope you know that. The other day I was listening to, uh, you know, just 
regular secular Christmas songs, Silver Bells, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And, you know, I hear those things, to be perfectly honest with you, and, and they elicit fond memories of when I was a child, you know, memories of singing some of those songs with my mother and father when we would, you know, decorate and we would do things like that. But all of a sudden it dawned on me the emptiness of it. Silver bells can't save. White Christmas can't cleanse me from my sin. Santa Claus is coming to town, does nothing for my future hope. I'll be home for Christmas means nothing to me from my eternal soul. And I switched on and I put some of the (coughs) choir hymns just in the choir hymns singing Hark the Herald Angels singing some of the some of the carols that we sang today. My heart floods with the joy of the expectation. And this is this. I have a Savior and a Redeemer. And no matter how vile my life may have been in the past, that that Christ child born in a manger grew to be a man, went to the cross, bore my sin, bore my iniquity, paid my penalty before a holy and righteous Father so that I can walk free and I could be a child of God. Let us worship Christ in that manner. Born of a virgin, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, the hope of Israel and the hope of nations, Messiah, the only sacrifice for sin. The one who died on the cross of Calvary for our sins was buried and rose on the third day from the dead, was seen by over 500 people after his resurrection, 40 days later ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of Father, who will come back to rapture his church to set up his earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. The only one, the only one, let me say that again, the only one who defeats sin, who defeats Satan, who defeats the accuser of your soul. He is the only one who can do that and will cast them in the lake of fire. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign forever and ever and ever. This is the Christ we serve. This is the Christ we worship. This is the Christ of Christmas. And it is this Jesus that alone has the power to save you from the penalty of your sins. He died for you so that you might have life eternal. And in the presence of God. I want to emphasize that. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it doesn't mean perpetuity. What it means is life in the presence of the immortal God, of the living God, of the perpetual God. Do you know that if you're saved, one day we shall be like Him. We will be cleansed. We will be pure. We will be unable to sin. Christ died to save us from the penalty of sin. Christ died to save us from the power of sin. And Christ died to save us from the presence of sin. And if you are in Christ, you will know that one day. 
Today we spoke of the exaltation of the Christ child and we contrasted that with the humility of the uh, Christ child. But know for sure that a day is coming when this Christ will indeed be exalted and he'll be exalted before all. I want to close with this verse. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. This is my Merry Christmas address to all of us. Beginning with verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name, praise God, his name is called the Lagos. It is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp uh, sword, so that he might smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'll just close with this. At his first advent, Israel was not looking for a suffering Savior. They were looking for a warrior, Messiah. One who is going to come with a sword and subjugate their enemies. Instead, what, they, what did they get? They got a babe in the manger. They got a suffering servant as the prophet Isaiah prophesied. One who didn't come with a sword, but one who was pierced by a sword and pierced by nails. Now everybody's looking for the nice, meek, and merciful Jesus who loves everybody. It doesn't matter what people do. You know, he loves God. Isn't God love? Isn't God love? But this time, he's not coming. He's coming magnified. He's coming glorified. He's coming with a rod of iron. He comes to rule the reign and to judge. The question for everybody today is, do you know Christ? And I'm not asking if you know about Christ. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do you know him? Has your life been impacted directly as were the shepherds? Has your life glorified and praised God for all you have seen and all you have heard and have been told. Are you in Christ? 
And if you can't answer that question affirmatively, if the evidence of your life does not bear testimony to the regenerative work that has been done in you by the Holy Spirit, that on this Christmas day, why would you waver? I beg you. I implore you. If I had one wish for you, and I use that term loosely, one desire, I should say, for you, is that you would be saved, that you would come to Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.